Okay, Mike can hear me now. So uh, I will play the, you know, well, you know what? To keep from having to do mixing later, I'll play the intro now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Here for on Radio Mysterioso for April 16th of 2017 with our guest and longtime friend, Mike Marinacci. Evening. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? Okay, the classic, classic opening. Yeah, uh, Chriswell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I found out. Um, what did I find out recently about Chriswell? Oh, I, I had some people here in in town um, uh, for for a gathering called Paramania. I took them by. There's a very large apartment building that was built, I guess, in the 20s, here in my neighborhood, and. Mae West used to occupy the top floor of that apartment. For many years, she occupied the, uh, in her dotage, she mm-hmm. uh, occupied the uh, penthouse of this apartment, mm-hmm. and she became huge friends with Criswell in the, I guess, in the 50s and 60s. And every year, she would, uh, this is the story, she would give him, uh, for $1, she would sell him her old Cadillac, which was a year old, because she, she would buy a new Cadillac every year. So she kept Criswell in brand, practically brand new Cadillac, brand new Cadillacs, for uh, for many years, and then she actually recorded a song about him too, called Criswell Predicts. Yeah, yeah. I know somebody that grew up in one of the apartment buildings he owned. He actually had a bit of money and invested in real estate. And uh, this guy has some pretty good stories about Criswell and his wife, who was kind of a character too. Maybe it's the same guy we talked to. He said he likes. Well, uh, the guy I talked to said he lived next door to Criswell, and Criswell had a, and this was in West LA somewhere. He had a, um, a bomb shelter in his front yard, <laughs> and his wife would um, his, his wife would uh, like sunbathe practically in the nude, like where everybody could see, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might have been the same guy. And she was very old too, which made which kind of frightened a lot of people, or at yeah. least older. Or she was past middle age. Anyway, she had a he had a um, bomb shelter in the front yard, which I thought might have been some sort of stunt by the bomb shelter company. Because he was Criswell, so he knew that there was something bad was going to happen. So he, <laughs> <laughs> he predicted a nuclear war, friends. Um, you know, imminent nuclear yeah. war with with the with the Russians. But yeah, he had this uh, bomb shelter in his front yard. I I, I yeah. wouldn't be surprised if it had a big sign on it saying "Bomb Shelter Provided by You Know Acme Bomb Shelter Incorporated." Or something. yeah, and yeah, and that they comped him for it in, mm-hmm. in exchange for okay, this is Criswell. He knows that uh, the nukes are coming. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, But enough about Criswell. Uh, Mike, I've known for many years, ever since, well, I knew about him around 1989 or so, when I found a copy of Mysterious California at the, um, I think it was called the Pan, something Pan Bookstore, Pipes of Pan Bookstore, the one in Hollywood, right on um, Coenga. Yeah, they I, probably picked it up because because the uh, publisher was called Panpipes Press. That's right. Oh, it was. I think yeah. it was the Panpipes Press bookstore, actually. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. You're right. So maybe it was the book. You know, as as in Amok had a bookstore. I guess they did. I don't think they were. I don't think uh, Parfrey and them were related after a while. But um, yeah, yeah. Panpipes Press was where I picked up a copy of Mysterious California, and then. Um, surprisingly, in 2005, I found out he was another one of the writers on Weird California, so we were sort of kind of co-authors, and then I finally got to meet him, um, this <laughs> this this uh, secret hero of mine for many years. Um, and now he's uh, – have you – you didn't have a book since Weird California, right? No, no. Uh, just uh, been bouncing around a lot. I've been doing some writing, and I guess I can – kind of segue into uh, the topic of conversation by just talking about that. Uh, We've discussed it before on uh, Radio Mysterioso, but I've had a long fascination, along with the history and sort of odd bits of California culture, with uh, non-traditional religion and spirituality. And um, did a lot of research, read a lot, done some uh, participant observation in various odd groups, which is a whole story unto itself, and uh, eventually said, well, why don't I combine California weirdness with religious cult weirdness and do kind of a big study of all the groups that have either come out of or settled in California? Well, it turned out to be this really huge, unwielding project, <laughs> and eventually, and I just was not able to get much work done on it because it was just so daunting, and eventually my then-girlfriend said, why don't you just divide it into several books and just concentrate initially on, say, the Christian groups? And I said, that's an excellent idea. Yeah. So that's what I did. Um and, uh, of course, you uh, started publishing a blog at one point called Califia's Children, and that's how I met uh, my publisher, uh, which is Ronan, Ronan uh, Publishing of uh, Berkeley, California, who've been around for many, many years and mm-hmm. have done all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful tomes. Right. And uh, they have, have put out uh, the resulting of all this work, which is called California Jesus. Um, the subtitle, which I have not memorized, is 
a slightly, California Jesus, a slightly irreverent guide to the Golden State's Christian sects, evangelists, and Latter-day Prophets by Mike Marinacci. That's on on Ronan. Uh, it was... Um, Sorry, I should have been more uh, formal in introducing you, but the, the, we're, we're moving along. Yes, I, I, I... We're moving along. At least now, yeah, now, now we've got the focus, and it's that, that's the book. Right, because so the original, was, uh, the, 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 the blog was, like you said, everybody, um, and it went yeah. all over the map, whether they were Christian or not. So and I, yeah. I was, the first question was going to be, why would you concentrate on the Christian cults? And I guess I have yeah. that, but... Um, well, it's, it's partly as to kind of kick off what I hope is going to be a series uh, of different books about about this uh, oh, yeah. this aspect of California street culture, and also because it's an area that has not been examined as much. I and I get into this in the introduction of California Jesus. I say when you think of the California cult or a spiritual group that originated out of here, kind of settles in here, we think of either an Eastern oriented group, uh, Hindu oriented. Buddhist, Zen, something like that, or something very occult, uh, neo-pagans and the Rosicrucians and that, this and that, or unfortunately, uh, the bad craziness ones like uh, Manson or People's Temple or whatnot, that there have been some really fascinating and intriguing and rather scandalous uh, Christian uh, churches and ministries and missionary groups and sects and sort of lone prophets as well that have uh, come out of the Golden State or settled down here over the last, um, well, actually, before even the gold rush. I start out the book with um, a look at William Monet, who was a Scottish-born uh, evangelist and controversialist who first went to Mexico and did battle with the Roman Catholic Church for many years there, and then settled in what was then uh, El Pueblo de los Angeles, uh, which was part of Mexico, and was part of the European expatriate community there, and started his own, not only started his own church called the Reformed New Testament Church, but published the first book in Los Angeles that had been published in English called The Reform of the New Testament, and it was... It was really a booklet. It was only about 22 pages long, and it was parallel English and Spanish text because at the time, uh, L.A. was effective. With L.A. was was bilingual back then before it became solid American territory. Yeah, that was actually and, fascinating to me that he actually published these things bilingually. It was just because he was from Scotland, moved to Mexico, and then came here, which, went, like you said, it was still Mexico. This was what, early 1840s, I think? This was the 1840s, yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and he actually had a uh, he actually got caught up in the Mexican American War uh, for a while. He and his wife were taken prisoner uh, when he was traveling between Los Angeles and uh, Mex and Lower Mexico. Right. And he claimed that he had a huge collection of of hand drawn maps that he'd done of the territory that were just seized and destroyed by John Fremont's troops, and he was never able to get them back or get compensation for them. He was a polymath and a real classic frontier eccentric. He was a, a frontier doctor. He treated people during a, uh, I believe it was a, ty- a, a typhus plague. Um, he was a geographer who had all sorts of weird theories about um, California being being built over a huge active uh, volcano caldera and that 
San Francisco had the thinnest, uh, the thinnest crust between it and the lava, and would eventually uh, wear thin and then fall, <laughs> fall into yeah. the flaming caldera. Par- partially as punishment for their sins of being such a yes, w- wicked, yes. wicked city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Um, uh, he was quite aware of the reputation of San Francisco in the Barbary Coast days, and uh, was a collector of all sorts of uh, oddments. And one of the really tragic things about him was H.H. Uh, uh, H. Bancroft actually was interested in buying his collection of manuscripts and uh, mementos and things from California in the West that had been put together over many, many years, and didn't offer enough money, and uh, after uh, after Monet died, and people aren't really sure if it, the year he died, and it was, I think, either 1882 or 1890, uh, it all disappeared. And this would have been just a priceless, fabulous collection, but it just got uh, snapped up by by whatever carrion feeders were lurking around Los Angeles at the time, looking for things, you know, for, for, uh, for collectibles. Yeah, picking over so, people's yeah, uh, estates, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Monet was really, in many ways, it's interesting that the first homegrown religious movement out in California, long before the communal movements, long before the Eastern-oriented ones, long before, you know, way, way before before the hippies and the beatniks and whatnot, yeah. was a uh, an evangelical Christian movement in, in Los Angeles. Uh, Do you think that's because that's the only thing he knew? Because he started out fighting the Catholic Church, I think, like you yeah. said, down in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Then he came up here to do it and um, went through many incarnations of, of weirdness. And, and, and it sounds like he was just always looking for the next, what's the word, the next uh, uh, angle. It, uh, well, he had many interests and many talents. Uh, as I said, he was, he was an evangelist and a writer and a frontier doctor and a geographer and a bit of an artist and an educator. He set up his own school near the end of his life out in uh, East Los Angeles, the Monean Institute, which had this very odd hexagonal building where the, uh, where, where the lessons took place. And it was adorned with all this cuneiform and bas-reliefs from Sumeria and things like that. Um, you know, again, very, very much an archetypal sort of, sort of Golden State eccentric. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though he was, he was really among the first, he was kind of the forerunner of, of so much of what we've seen in the last 170-odd years. Yeah, and uh, his name was... religion. Yeah, yeah, and his name was actually spelled M-O-N-E-Y. Yes, and he was always always at pains <laughs> to put the to put the accent uh, the accent grave over it so that people would pronounce it Monet. Yeah, instead of money. Yeah, uh, like uh, like uh, who's the guy now? Crefilio Dollar or Dollar or whatever his name is. Dollar. Yeah, he has yeah. Dollar in his name. So yes. <laughs> and yeah. oh, there, uh, the other thing I thought was uh, fascinating about him is is his um, uh, uh, since this is Easter, his buried mm-hmm. alive stunt. Oh, yes, yes. He once, as a test of his faith, um, offered to be publicly buried alive six feet down in a, in a, co- in a pine coffin in down, downtown L.A., which back then was a fairly sleepy burg of just a few thousand people. And I get into the whole story of what happened at that in, uh, in California Jesus as well, which was <laughs> very amusing and revealing as to the, the man's character and his faith. Yeah. So, well, he, yeah, he was. Uh, it, it's he's, and he's mostly been forgotten. I mean, it, 
every now and then, every couple of decades or so, there'll be a little human interest thing when there's an article about great Los Angeles eccentrics. There'll be like a paragraph about him. And you can go visit his, uh, his gravestone out uh, at Stan Gabriel Cemetery. There's a photo of it, actually, in, uh, in California, Jesus. It has a design of his hexagonal house on it, or octa- octagonal, I forget. And, octagonal. Uh, and yeah, octagonal, and um, just a uh, sort of tribute to various things he did. It says he was a physician, theologian, philosopher, writer, naturalist, historian, advocate of the octagonal concept in building design and construction. <laughs> so it's very, and it lists it lists his, his date as date of death as being circa 1881. Again, <laughs> the, you know, there was this mystery about when he actually passed on. So yeah, somebody that could probably also find kind out. of. Yeah, that also kind of feeds into the whole the whole mythos around uh, around eccentricity and cultism and alternative religion or or orthodox religion. Here, it's just these things, omniated whatever the Latin phrase is about all ends and mystery that we don't even know you know exactly when the year the guy died. Yeah, I also found it interesting. He was penniless when he died, but or practically penniless, but. Somebody had guaranteed him a grave because of that, uh, whatever the epidemic was, the typhoid epidemic or whatever yeah, it was. They thought yeah. that they'd cured somebody in their family. He said, okay, you got a plot in our our uh, family our family plot, and he got it, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah, well, actually, it was he. the family, he had uh, treated a, a, a boy when a boar, a wild boar had Oh, that's him. it, that's out it. Out of gratitude, Sorry. they promised him, yeah, place in the family plot. So, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, the the next chapter, we don't have to go chapter by chapter, but I did not realize that Pentecostalism had started in Los Angeles. It makes as me a, kind of proud, almost. As an organized movement, absolutely, yes. Um, I discuss in Chapter 2 uh, the whole cult, so-called Azusa Steep Creek Revival, which was begun by an African-American preacher, William Seymour. Now, Pentecostalism, the sort of phenomenon of speaking in tongues and what's called the fire, the baptism of fire, when one is, uh, is, is sort of filled with the, uh, the Holy Spirit, much as the apostles were in, in Pentecost up in the upper room and went off to evangelize the world, has something that would occasionally happen now and then throughout Christian history, but it really became kind of a, a subject of interest in the Midwest in the late 19th century, and Seymour uh, picked up on it and brought it to Los Angeles and sort of started this movement among the first among the, the small African American community in Los Angeles, and then it just got the attention of the whole city. And outside of the, the house where they were meeting, it had been kicked out of the church where he'd started it because it was just considered very uh, heretical and scandalous. Um, Outside of the house, there would be these public demonstrations and um, and meetings, camp meetings of hundreds or even thousands of people uh, praying and chanting and singing, and some of them would even um, would even collapse uh, and start fl- kind of flailing around on the ground, and that's where the term "holy roller" came from. Was from this phenomenon that was associated with 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 what would be called Pentecostalism, and it just became very very controversial in the city because 
it wasn't just the African-American community. You had white people, you had Latinos, you had Asians, and everybody was just kind of mixing together and hugging and giving each other the kiss of peace and spending all this time very close together. And, well, we can't have that now, can we? Race mixing. So... By the time it, but by the time that was really becoming kind of this big scandal in 1906, Los Angeles, uh, people who had um, it was beginning to seed other parts of the world. People, missionaries, were going to Asia and Africa and Europe and Latin America and everywhere, and sort of bringing the news of this incredible revival that was happening in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, they main meeting place was on Azusa Street, which is what's called the Azusa Street Revival. And to, to this day now, uh, Pentecostalism has become this huge movement in world Christianity. It may have set as many as several hundred million people involved in this very emotive and enthusiastic uh, form of worship and, uh, and a very kind of... Uh, loud and, and, and joyful uh, uh, form of, um, of meeting and, and praise and encountering the divine. So that was, that's one thing that not too many people outside of Pentecostalism itself realize, that Los Angeles was really where the movement not so much started, but was organized and got legs and spread to all corners of the earth, and right. it's still this incredibly powerful movement within Christianity. They're all over Los Angeles. It's all it's mainly um uh let, Latino population attends yeah. these churches as far as I can tell. Um they're yeah. very loud and every time I drive every night of the week too. They they go to church yeah. every single night. And the other thing you pointed out which I thought was interesting was that uh this is where the 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 speaking in tongues um, really mm-hmm. grew too and that's that's actually, you know, uh, still a featured part of Pentecostal uh services. Oh yes. Yes. Um and that is based on the uh, the account in the Bible and Acts of what happened with the apostles when they had and uh, Mary when they had their meeting in the upper room as they started speaking in all the languages of men, and that was sort of a signal to go out and bring the the good news to all corners of of the world. And so we have this this funny kind of. Uh, imitation or replication of it happening among regular people uh, that's been going on for a long, long time within within these churches, within these these uh, movements, um, and it's always been a thing that's been very egalitarian. Uh, it's been very uh, broad, uh, multiracial. Uh, women have always taken a big a big role in it. I think that was another one of the, the rather scandalous things about it was. Um, was the the very upfront participation of women as well as men in leading prayers and ceremonies and whatnot uh, there, and that was just in in a lot of the uh, the Christian world, the American Christian world of the the early 1900s. Well, we could we can't have this either because Saint Paul had all these admonitions about women speaking in the church, and uh, so that was a big I think a a big revolutionary part of it as well was the the breaking down of these these racial and gender uh, barriers that had existed. 
Yeah, and significantly enough, this happens in California, um, mm-hmm. which is yeah. uh, where a lot of these things started. And th- wacky stuff that starts here is often spread to the rest of the planet. I really didn't know about the Pentecostal part of it. What what years were these? Uh, 1906. Oh, okay, very early. I think one thing that really gave it gave it some a lot of credibility was a, f- a few weeks after it, it started, and they started publishing tracts in a, a newspaper was uh, the Ot 6 earthquake happened in San Francisco, and mm-hmm. they saw that as, as a sign, oh, look what's happening, these are signs of the end times, this is, and because these were both happening in California, people figured, oh, man, this is, this, you know, something is going on here, That's, that this could be the first days of the, of the last days, and uh, that that was really, I think, what what gave it a lot of visibility as well was just it, this happy uh, associa- uh, <laughs> association. Suddenly, I wouldn't know if I'd call it happy, but a just fortuitous for them anyway. To, yeah, fortuitous for them with uh, the most the most famous dis- uh, natural disaster ever happening that ever happened in the Western U.S. Yeah. In in the modern era, where the the people could hear about these things, there might have been huge yeah, earthquakes yeah. there. But before there was anybody yeah. there to communicate about it, you wouldn't have heard about it. So this was like yeah. kind of a first first shot across the bow of uh, of uh, modern whatever communication, where this thing happens yeah. and it can get around the world in in within yeah. a day or so or a couple days yeah, anyway. Yeah, and in California, Jesus, one of the things I discuss is just how central communications technology has been to the uh the missions and the uh and the sort of impact of the groups that either came out of here or settled here of course with um with the pentecostals it was the, the huge numbers of tracts and newspapers that they published that went all over the world and accompanied their um uh, the people that were 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 setting up pentecostal missions uh and of course possibly the most famous pentecostal preacher of all time was a californian too and that was amy simple mcpherson yeah who is uh, the, uh, the next amy. Uh, yeah exactly then the next yeah. chapter actually yeah. yeah well again she was she was actually had been born and raised in canada but had been um had, her little town had been visited by one of the uh uh one of the missionaries from the Azusa Street movement and she had uh, been converted and had uh, gotten <coughs> gotten the call to preach and had spent many years having kind of a kind of a rough life uh her first husband, who was who was the Pentecostal preacher, died, and then she had a bad second marriage, and almost died in hospital, and just went through a lot, and then really committed herself to um, evangelizing the country, and went all over, and was found to be this woman with this almost superhuman charisma, and I think more importantly, and this ties in with another aspect of California, was a real showman. I mean, she could really hold a stage and really hold people's attention and knew how to to, to, to put on a show. And so by the time she had uh, really gotten a name for herself and had collected a lot of money to open up her, her own um, her own edifice, which is the, the Angelus Temple, which still exists and is quite uh, still quite well attended, uh, she would stage these uh, as part of her um, her revivals and her her um, uh, her ministry would stage these these almost Cecil B. DeMille like produ- productions there, where 
when she wanted to discuss the uh, the story of the Israelites fleeing Egypt, she actually imported in thousands and thousands of gallons of ec- of real seawater and built this artificial artificial sea on the stage and somehow engineered it so it would so it would split when the costumed Israelites would were were uh, <laughs> were passing over it, being chased by. Uh, fully costumed Egyptian soldiers. Uh, she set up a, uh, a working Mary to go around on on the stage once to make some kind of a point. Uh, she would ride a huge <laughs> Harley Davidson motorcycle up and down. This was and this was all utterly unprecedented. I mean, we've yeah. always had in in California and the U.S. very very colorful. Um, very forceful preachers, but she just took it to this new level where it was Hollywoodized. It was right. a show. And uh, she was also the first woman to ever hold a radio license from the SCC. She right. took it onto the airwaves. And, uh, of course, I also discuss in California, Jesus, the very uh, bad scandal that crippled her ministry. Didn't destroy it completely, but really badly crippled it. Uh, where she was kind of at the height of her powers too yeah at the height of her powers she was supposedly kidnapped and there is there's a lot of controversy over that between uh her latter-day followers and other people as to what actually happened and um it did it did slow her ministry down quite a bit and uh i think a lot of that also was due to the depression that this it was a very roaring 20s uh um phenomenon of what that she uh, that she was, and when when people were broke, <laughs> when the economy collapsed, it they're, they're the focus of um, of the Foursquare uh, movement, which is what her her group was called, mm-hmm. became very different. It became more towards serving the poor and giving people meals and all that. And right. Really, the, the the flashiness was kind of gone uh, after about 1930. Do you think there was a direct influence of being in Hollywood and movies and all that? And that's what she figured. That's what people wanted, and she built these big things on stage. It, it, it had to absolutely. be absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she she was a she when she was a, a uh, had been a teenager she'd wanted to be an actress. Ah. Uh, she'd gone through a big t- she'd grown up in a uh, in a Salvation Army family and had uh-huh. rebelled and said I'm an atheist I don't believe any of this stuff I'm going to get out of this little you know podunk little town in Ontario and go be a famous actress and <laughs> in a sense she did and in a yeah. sense she I think exceeded probably what her wildest dreams were and. Be- because she had those sensibilities, I think absolutely she was she was picking up on Hollywood and the and the whole staging of a spectacle right as a way to tell a story and a way to to attract attention yeah yeah I never really knew that she was uh wanted to be an actress, and it makes complete sense in mm-hmm. uh in what she did later. And that you know she would be on the radio, and you know, and she even mm-hmm. she was even involved in a in a scandal that an actress would have been involved in, which was you know disappearing yeah, for a while, yeah. and people mm-hmm. found out later that she was probably shacked up with somebody, and it was a fake, and it was, and yeah. she was. I don't think she was ever convicted, but like you said, it just really de- dealt a huge blow yeah. to the to the Four Square yeah. Church, which is still here. You can still visit it, as you say, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't think they have spectacles there anymore. But <laughs> no, no. But they they have they have actually as ordained thousands and thousands of ministers. In fact, I know a minister in it. Uh, they still have a worldwide following that is quite large, and it's really kind of a testimony to the woman's charisma and um, 
and just talent for uh, for publicizing the gospel in the in the particular way she did it. That it's it's mm-hmm. still with us and it's still still rather potent movement as yeah. part as and as one of the real you know the the, the real original uh, Pentecostal movements that's still out there. I mean, there have been so many others, but that's that's one of the old the old established ones is the Foursquare group. Right. And then when, uh, when did she die? In the 50s sometime? Or? 1944. 44, very early. Uh, yeah. yeah. Now, I thought she died a lot later for some reason. And she's, I've been to her grave in um, at Forest Lawn. It's very um, elaborate. Oh, yes. yes. She, had, she still she had was... enough money for a Forest Lawn plot that was huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much beloved by her followers. Um, a very, uh, again, almost like a like a movie star, uh, and was yeah. a very attractive woman too, which helped. Very physically attractive, very uh, very good voice. Uh, yeah. knew how to use her voice. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah, I don't know what I don't want to embarrass you, but do, do you do you know about Curtis Springer? I've heard the name. Yeah, he was. He's. Um, you know, when you go out to Vegas, there's that little place out uh, off the road called Zizek's Road. Oh, Zizek's, yes. Yeah. The, uh, the, the health scammer. Yes, I've heard of him. Yeah, I'm not even sure if he's really. I guess he was. Uh, you could consider him a. Uh, yeah, a, 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 a Christian preacher, but I think he was mostly based in on radio as, as a radio preacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And he was mostly, I, he didn't really get in because he, I think he was basically mostly based around Las Vegas in that area. That's true, yeah. I, he, yeah. I think he started yeah. out in L.A. They, yeah. There used to be a large radio tower down here that said Jesus Saves, and I, I'm not sure if that was his. It's probably Gene Scott's who we'll get to. Yeah, yeah, who, who I also discuss in California Jesus. Exactly. Who is, again, quite the showman. And that's, yeah, and again, this is very much... Um, very much quintessentially Californian themes. The, the the exploitation of communications technology, whether it was uh, radio with Sister Amy or television, and the, and especially cable television as a way of getting around the FCC, mm-hmm. uh, which is what uh, Dr. Gene Scott did. Um, and then into something which this may be stretching a bit, and I mentioned <laughs> this in the introduction. Uh, one of the less savory characters I discuss in California Jesus is the the Reverend Wesley Swift. Uh, Wesley Swift was really the, um, and in many ways, kind of the the intellectual father of the white racist uh, Christian identity uh, theology. And to basically explain that, it posits that. Um, it comes out of something called Anglo-Israelism, which says that the, the ten lost tribes of Israel actually migrated to either Britain or Europe on the whole and are now basically the Anglo-Saxon people oh, and yeah. or uh, Western, Western European white people. Yeah, the House and of that, David that, was built yeah. on that, I think, the House of David cult in uh, Michigan. Yes, it's it's uh, it's it's been in a lot of places. The House of David have adapted that. Um, uh, the... Church of God Inter- International, the Armstrongs, that was part of their theology, but uh, it kind of got transmogrified by Swift and a couple of other people. It's just Swift was the most notorious. Anglo-Israelism says, well, the Jews of today were kind of one of the tribes that survived, 
and white people or Anglo-Sex people, whatever, have to get along with them because they're our brothers and sisters, and, and we have to observe the Old Testament strictures just as they do. Well, Christian identity said, no, 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 no. Actually, they're Canaanites. They're false usurpers of the identity of the ancient Hebrews. And they're actually partly demonic, too, because they're all descended from Cain, who was the son of... who who was the half... actually the half-son of... uh, of, a half-brother of uh, Abel. Abel, Because because there's an old Gnostic myth about um, the serpent mating with Eden, and then the, the child of that offspring being Cain, who started the Canaanite line, and so it was this... Uh, this very, um, this almost demonic group. So it turned into this very virulent anti-Semitic and racist uh, 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 theology that also said that all all people of color were sort of the proto-humans that were called the beasts of the field in in Genesis. That the only real humans are are white Westerners, and uh, Swift. Uh, actually found quite an audience for for this sort of stuff in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And when he died in, I believe, 1970, his position in the movement was taken over by the man who started what's called now called the Aryan Nations, which is the group that was up in the Idaho panhandle for many years, uh, committing all sorts of crimes and terror and whatnot. And still exist in kind of in a very underground format, but their whole rationale was this, um, their whole mythic rationale was this very racist and anti-Semitic sort of perversion of uh, Old Testament history and Christian doctrine into being kind of this, this white supremacist thing. That uh, And there's actually a, uh, a couple of authors who wrote this, uh, this book called The Awful Grace of God about the killing of Martin Luther King Jr., who traced... Um, that and a lot of the um, uh, a, a lot of the rhetoric around the the anti civil rights movement to Swift and to Swift's uh, cassette tapes. Swift, I think, was one of the first. Oh, that's right. You said preachers, yeah, to, to realize to realize you can easily dupe the cassette tapes of your talks and send them to people all over the world, and of course they'll dupe them and send them to more people. And I, as I said in the introduction, it became kind of like an ancestor of the internet, where right. you have this easily replicable magnetic media form of communication. And again, out of California, uh, and. No, uh, not a coincidence or accident, really. I think it's because of the influence of Hollywood and later Silicon Valley has just been so huge, first in our our state and then around the world. That of course it is going to, uh, it's it's going to influence the way the gospel, as variously understood, is is uh, transmitted by the various individuals and groups around around here. And certainly they will uh, they will influence the the groups that they. The, that they come into contact with. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Swift is 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 uh, another another really fascinating and kind of a dark way uh, character, and I discuss him in, in California Jesus. Yeah, the, there's a few others. Uh, the the first one that kind of surprised me, and I was kind of it's like <laughs> every chapter in this book could be an entire book. Um, oh yes. Yeah. yeah. In fact, a few people in there have been the subject. There have been several very good books about Amy Semple McPherson, who's right, an right. endlessly fascinating person. Right. Uh, 
I was I was referring specifically actually to the chapter after McPherson. I think was um, the Pattons, BB and Thomas or C. Thomas Patton. That's a fascinating story. That sounds yeah, like a movie. Yeah. Yeah, um, Kerry McWilliams wrote about them in the Nation at the time uh, that the whole the whole news was breaking about them. Uh, okay, just okay. to 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 quickly describe uh, uh, Island uh, in the Land, Kerry McWilliams, that one. I don't know if it was the, if it was anthologized there. I mean, I saw it in the original. No, I uh, meant the author was uh, Kerry McWilliams, who wrote that Southern California Island in the Land book. Yes, which he was is probably one of the best books about Southern California I've ever read. Yes, yeah, absolute classic. Yeah. Yeah, but the Pattons were a uh, husband and wife team of uh, also who had who had sort of just as um, just as Sister Amy had sort of picked up on the Azusa Street movement, they had sort of taken the torch from uh, from Sister Amy and gotten got Pentecostalism really going in Oakland in the 1940s, mostly among the sort of uh, transplanted Southern and Midwesterners who'd come to work there in the shipyards and the defense plants during World War II, mm-hmm. and really wanted to have some of that good down-home Pentecostal <laughs> evangelical yeah. religion going on. Uh, the, the thing that happened with them was they came in to Oakland originally saying, we're just going to conduct a revival here. The existing churches can pick up our, uh, our saved people. We'll, go, we'll move on move to on, a yeah. revival somewhere else. Well, they did so well in Oakland, they decided, no, we'll, we'll start our own church here, thank you. And they started the Christian Evangelical Churches of America and some allied groups with that, including their own uh, Bible college which still exists. It was, then it was called the Patton College, now it's Patton University. And uh, they became, after a while, notorious because along with the standard uh, Pentecostal services they have, which, have, as usual, were very emotive and loud and enthusiastic, C. Thomas, the husband, was an absolute master at doing collections, at shaking down his their followers for unbelievable amounts of money for 1940s working class people. He would every service he'd get at least several thousand dollars, if not much more than that, uh, because he was just so good at intimidating and browbeating and manipulating and just generally terrorizing his audience into giving into giving the patents money. He was also a, a master at scamming uh, banks in the area, too. I oh, mean, yeah. it wasn't just these, these factory workers. He, uh, he would get these huge unsecured loans from local banks. Uh, the man just really had a gift for, uh, for separating individuals and institutions from their money in the name <laughs> of God. And I, I say in the book that really... What he did was unprecedented in American history. You really didn't see anything like that before him, and you and you really didn't see it again until the the uh, the television ministries really got going in the 1970s with Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and people like that, where there was just this naked avarice. Uh, on behalf of a of of a religious organization, on behalf of 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 God, and eventually, um, eventually he got stopped. There was a uh, um, there was a trial, and he was put away for a few years. And uh, the as with uh, as with Amy, the the church survived, or at least the uh, the school did. We still have Patton University in Oakland. It is a, now a uh, respected. Uh, 
uh, private college uh, with the they still have the, the the Pentecostal spiritual orientation, but it's it's a little more downplayed. And the story of the Pattons and just this huge scandal they had in the Bay Area in California in the, more than in the one it, it seems like. has been forgotten. It's yeah. been buried. Yeah. Uh, you 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 know if you hear about Patton now is oh Patton College that's funny that funny little Christian college in Southeast Oakland and you <laughs> never hear about uh, <laughs> what they were uh, this this rather large and and very embarrassing story about uh, about them and how they really kind of set the pace for the the later televangelists as yeah. far as just being completely money driven yeah uh, I, I think ministries. they. I think Gene Scott took a lot of uh, uh, lessons from them in, in, the, in, the, in, the, oh, in yes. the way that the people would say, you know, why do you have all these cars and this big house? And, you know, he had 200 pairs of boots and all this. And they said, well, the Lord wants us to have those things. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's none of your business. Op- <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, classic rationale. And another a spin on, a kind of an interesting spin on that was put on by another Oaklander who was uh, uh, King Louis Narcisse. Oh yeah, that was an African American. Yeah, uh, and he was active at the same time as the Patton's. But whereas the Patton's, I think, were were sort of broad based, Narcisse really concentrated more on the African American population. And he was like them, real emphasis on uh, on the donations. Lived very well, lived very flashy. And when he was interviewed once about this by a reporter from Ebony Magazine. They were saying, well, isn't this kind of controversial? You're in this very poor community, and here you are with these these limousines, and you've, called your, you've crowned yourself as a king, and you, have, you live in this beautiful, huge house in Piedmont, and have all these luxuries. And his rationale was, he says, well, I'm trying to show people you can have it all here, and you can have it all in the next world too. I'm trying to be an inspiration for them yeah. uh, to to, you know, to lift themselves out of poverty. So he had that that kind of rationalization for his own um, his own indulgences, his own uh, very rather sybaritic lifestyle. And again, this is another person who's really been been forgotten even in local history and local culture and all that. I think it's because I think because once he died there was really no um successor to him and he did not have a really stable institution like Patton University to sort of carry the name and the mission on from. Yeah. So he sort of been King Louis has been been thrown into the uh uh into the memory hole and it's too bad because he himself was an incredibly interesting character and I, I discussed him in California Jesus in quite a bit of detail. He was a very talented gospel singer too and was friends with uh, Mahalia Jackson and Little Richard and um put out at several very good if not very commercially successful uh um uh, albums of gospel music, and that was always really the big theme of his um, Mount Zion spiritual temple was to have uh, these Pentecostal s- services that were well. They were Pentecost. They, they had several influences. There was Pentecostalism as far as just the enthusiasm and the, the emotion of the service. Uh, he was a, uh, originally from Louisiana, so there was a big Catholic influence too. He would wear a bishop's mitre and and robes, and his his uh, ministers had priests. Stoles and berettas, and his female, his serious female followers would would have nuns' habits. Um, there was it was very Southern uh, African American Southern Baptist, big emphasis on music. Uh, very famous for the gospel music that would be played there, 
And also, some people maintained, well, there's another Louisiana influence going on with King Narcisse here. There's a bit of voodoo going on. He would do a lot of, like, paid blessings of objects and holy water and would do, uh, there would be things that would be Which kind of reminiscent of. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, would be kind of reminiscent more of African folk religion than anything else. And other, and it was pointed out, you notice that he always called his ministry Mount Zion Spiritual Temple. The word church was not used there, and say, well, this is kind of suspect, and again, I'm not one, I'm not one to judge. I just lay out the story as I, as I told it, and I just, as I said before, think that, that Narcisse was just a really interesting character. I think just the equal of somebody like Father Divine in New York, right, uh, right. as far as just this, this huge uh, and fascinating uh, person that came out of uh, the whole African-American cultural and spiritual experience and put his own spin on it and his own uh, his own flavor on it, and yeah. at the same time, very much in the California spirit. Yes, very much so. It's funny, because uh, I have a book on Father Divine. I knew a little bit about him, and there yeah. was actually, I believe, a TV movie or a movie made with James Earl Jones playing Father Divine, I believe, in the 70s sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a strange casting, because James Earl Jones is a big guy, and Father Divine was this rather small man. Oh, was he? But he just, yeah, yeah, he was, he was I think, under five feet. But no, he, he just, just acted very, big. very char- yeah, charismatic. And I was going to just throw out one more almost little plug here. There is actually an online sure. organization on Facebook called the, uh, the KLHN Foundation that is trying to preserve... Memoir, mementos and photos and accounts and things like that of uh, King King Louis uh, Narcisse, and that's really the only trace of his, uh, along with a couple of, couple of articles, the only trace of of his ministry that I can find around today. It's another one of those things that's kind of been buried. Yeah, so, I've, yeah I've the KLHN Foundation yeah. on, um, on on Facebook has is starting to collect things about him. Also, the Arhuli records. Uh, oh, because they okay. do so much stuff with yeah with with roots music that they uh-huh. have um, they they have a documentary that they put together that has some some footage of him uh, doing ceremonies and, and singing and and uh, they al- they were also kind enough to to uh, to loan a couple of photographs that I used in California Jesus but not you know again like like the patent has just been kind of kind of pushed into the memory hole until now. Are any of these places still, you know, like, um, is his temple still around, or uh, whatever it was called? It, the, the, the building, building is used for something else now. Right, it, right. It, it and his, and his, both it and his uh, temple in Detroit, which was sort of his East Coast headquarters, had these mysterious fires after he died. Hmm. Uh, they really were not able to preserve too much of, um, of his physical heritage, I think, for that reason, and also because there were... There were some very interesting things about he, he'd organized the temple as what's called the Corporation Soul, S O L E, which is something that's reserved just generally for religious institutions where it's controlled pretty much by one person. You don't have a board of directors, you don't have bylaws. It becomes almost like this this single person's operation. Ah. And uh, because he didn't name any successors and didn't have a board of directors in the normal corporate organization, when he passed on, it just, uh, just disintegrated. All his disputes and the whole, yeah, the whole thing just kind of got torn apart and doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the other fascinating thing I remember from his story in your book was um, he 
got in a caravan all the way across the country to go see JFK's inauguration. Mm-hmm. And when he got there, he he had a, he stopped wearing his his bishop's mitre or whatever it is, and started wearing a crown after a while, and called himself king. And when he got there, they thought he was some some like leader of some small country in Africa they'd never. Yeah, heard. they thought he was. Yeah, they thought he was a, he was an a, an African national leader because he was this this guy resplendent in this crown and robes with this huge entourage and, and <laughs> coming with him. And yeah, he was um, uh, again charismatic. Um, charismatic man and um just another another one of the many <laughs> the many fascinating individuals and groups i i discuss in california jesus a, a scary one who i also found fascinating well the whole thing is fascinating is uh jeffers joseph jeffers jeffers to me I wouldn't call him scariest. I'd just say the man was just so colorful and so out there and so (laughs) colorful. Yeah, open to just about any influence he could exploit. And you talk about people that have really been been forgotten and that one really has to dig for information on, but once one has has dug it up, it is quite rewarding. And that would be Joe Jeffers. Joe Jeffers started out in the American South, and he was um, his orientation was hard shell Baptist. Back when it was really beginning to get traction in the 1920s, as kind of a like various other things that were happening, a, a reaction to the very um, the very dramatic uh, social changes that were happening in America and the whole. And he was very much. Um, uh, in that tradition of just just kind of the southern barn burning evangelist, uh, he actually at one point tried to take over a church in Arkansas in 1930, and it it became an actual shooting religious war. There were gun battles, there were bombs being thrown, um, there were riots. Uh, it was called it happened in a place called Jonesboro, and it's it's called the Jonesboro War. And he was at the very center of it, and eventually things calmed down, even though at one point the governor had to call out the National Guard to keep the, the various factions from, from killing each other in the mm-hmm. streets. But once he'd worn out his welcome there, he came to Los Angeles and established the, um, the kingdom of Yahweh. He changed his theology and was no longer a Baptist. Now he was what was called a... Uh, advocate of the of the um the sacred name theology and then the sacred names basically says you can't call god god and jesus jesus because god is a is a um is a generic term for any old deity and jesus is this weird quasi pagan thing jesus christ is this thing quasi pagan term we get from the greeks that evoke more uh uh the, the classical gods. So you have to go by the the original Hebrew or Aramaic words, which for God the Father is uh, Yahweh, yep. and and the Son is Yeshua, and it's still a still a very vital movement out there. Um, they even they even translated and wrote their own Bi- uh, did their own translation of the Bible. But he kind of took it into this really weird area where he would link it up with a lot of political extremism. When he was in Los Angeles, he was very tight with uh, the Silver Shirts, who were the the big fascist group in the in the Western yeah, pa- U.S. Pelly. At the time. Yeah, William Dudley Pelly, who <laughs> another character could, who could have a whole a whole book. Well, he has a whole book about him, but he kind of a whole movie about him. 
And uh, Jeffers also had his own radio station. Um, like so many other figures in California, Jews got embroiled in a huge scandal having to do with um, his his and his wife's private life, which was rather <laughs> rather colorful. And I don't really want to go into the details, but you can oh, read about you can if you like. In, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I want people to buy the book. I want people to buy California Jesus and read it for themselves and realize that this is all in the 1930s in Los Angeles. And again, this is people in organized religion in the Christian faith that are behaving just like the wildest movie stars of the time. Yeah. And, and yeah, but, but it has all been sort of forgotten. I mean, you know, we, we know, I think partly because of the influence of Kenneth Anger, we know about all the things having to do with Gene Harlow and, uh, right. Mary Provost and all of the, the scandals of the time that's been preserved or before that, something like Fatty Arbuckle or the William uh, murder of William Desmond Taylor. Uh-huh. But the things having to do with the religious figures, have kind of, except for Amy McPherson, have kind of all been swept under the, uh, yeah, under kind of the rug. Been, yeah, you don't I, hear about them. Yeah. Maybe even uh, uh, purposely forgotten, because people don't want to think this about uh, people that are supposedly religious or representing yep. Christianity. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, he, yeah, and then he went on to do all sorts of other crazy things. He had he had this huge, for a while he had this huge mansion in Laurel Canyon Boulevard, which is such a, a locus of culture and strangeness in Los Angeles. Right, and right. Had his, uh, his, his female followers li- paying huge amounts of money to live with him there, and they would have these noisy ceremonies before dawn, praying for money to fall on them from the sky. And <laughs> he had this survivalist retreat out near, near Palm Springs, and he got thrown in federal prison for a while because of um, because of some uh, uh, financial miscreants, and he'd been through I think four different wives, and uh, yeah, yeah. he lived to be almost ninety and was right. active till the end of the the days. I mean, by in his last years, he was um, he was studying some of the the, the theories that had put put forth in the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail about about if Jesus had actually survived the crucifixion. And he was uh, he was very much into uh, into UFOs and claimed that God actually lived in the um, Yahweh. Excuse me. Yes. Lived in the uh, constellation Orion and had guaranteed him several billion dollars once he passed on to the next life. And just a, a real wild man who was. Uh, he would talk about Atlantis and Lemuria and the importance of these lost continents and they were going to rise again. He, he just, talked about he this put, stuff during his court cases. Yeah. Which didn't yeah, help him court, at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, although one could say, one could say, well, Henry, he's crazy like a fox. He's trying to come off as such an eccentric that they're not going to take him seriously there. And, of course, that didn't happen. He he had to do time like everybody else. Multiple times. But, yeah, yeah, it was, and um, this is one of the, the many people I've written about here who does not have a book-length bio written about him, and I'm almost uh, I'm almost ready to take it on myself because the man is just so utterly fascinating. He had this 70-year-long career, got away with so much, was <laughs> always uh, marrying or dallying with women much younger than himself, was just a master uh, uh, of of using the media, um, was very good at getting lots large amounts of money out of people, and then kind of uh, kind of wasting them. Uh, he went through. He went through a few, mil- several million dollars. I'd see in his life. Um, 
ended up in ended up in in, uh, in Missouri and, and had this uh, had had a tract out there where he built this giant pyramid on it, which he said would she would would protect him and his followers from the, from nuclear war. I mean, just one crazy thing after another with this guy that I get into in uh, in California. Jesus, yeah, good old Joe Jeffers, and he still has a following today. He still has one of his old lieutenants still runs. Uh, it's mostly on the web and it's mostly written material, but still has um, the materials available, and uh, he still has a little. Small following today of people that that see him as 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 a prophet and as a great uh, interpreter of the uh, the Christian faith and who synthesized it with things ha- you know things having to do with lost continents and UFOs and whatnot. Uh, just a, a wild man. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it would make an amazing uh, TV show or or a movie or something if if that book was written. So get on it there, Mike. There's a question. Nobody nobody ever believe it. That's the problem. Well, I mean, this is one of the reasons I write nonfiction yeah. is because it's, it's always more fasc- more fascinating than anything you could dream up in 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 a novel or a short story. Uh I mean, if 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 I tried to write a, a science fiction novel about a guy like this, Nobody, nobody believe it. It just wouldn't be credible. Uh, I mean, that's that's what was once said to get off of uh, uh, California Jesus for a second, to get out of the Christian tradition for a second, looked at more modern sort of invented religions. Uh, the biographer of L. Ron Hubbard once said that the really ironic thing about that guy was he was a science fiction writer right. who ended up living a life that was crazier than anything he possibly could have ever came up with as a very prolific author where he just he invented his own religion and had his own his his his, his own fleet of ships that were constantly fleeing uh, persecution from the governments of the world and with had had gotten all these celebrities involved in in his in in in, uh, in, in his religion and was doing i mean this is the fascinating thing to me about people that construct or either construct their own or interpret existing uh, mythologies. And I say that not to, you know, not not to be insulting towards the Christian faith, but I see it as partly on a mythic level, along with uh, that, that is a very powerful uh, myth that one of those has hugely influenced not only. The United States and the West, but the world in the divisions of uh, uh, the division of, of Christ and his his uh, uh, his life and his mission, as we discuss it on Easter Sunday. <laughs> I said, as a story, um, it's it, it is just so powerful. And of course, there are many other stories out there, whether they be of Buddha or Muhammad or the Indi- uh, the gods of South Asia or the indigenous peoples in various places. And this is uh, we just we just live in our lives, but we really we really exist. I think really have our um, our deepest uh, existence in in our myths and the stories we tell each other and the stories I like to tell as a nonfiction author and as what I do in California Jesus are the nonfiction ones. Yeah, and they always, like you said, mythological. They always seem to follow these narratives. That's why you know. Uh... 
mythology and um, psychology and uh, depth psychology and all these things I think are very important when you're looking at one what you're looking at any of the of the UFO stuff that we that I'm interested in um, the way it affects people seems to fall along very uh, defined if you look at it for a while very defined uh, channels actually one of the yeah. one of the witness witnesses we've got witnesses here witnessing the show one of the uh, listeners <laughs> Asked um, if you have uh, John asked. I'm wondering if uh, Mr. Marinacci has. Uh, oh, now somebody put in a has any uh, tr- difficulty classifying some of these groups as Christian since they depart so far from orthodoxy. Well, that's actually a very good question, and yeah. I I discussed that in particular in the case of Jeffers, who had just gone so far beyond it. And I think it's a question really of, of how one defines orthodoxy and how far one is going away. You could take somebody like Jeffers, who was, I think, went beyond Christianity into almost this quasi-New Age yeah. ufology uh, um, area. And then you can also have groups that were considered very controversial, but essentially Christian at their core, which would be the Pentecostal groups, uh, the British Israelites, whatever, there, they would. Um, I mean, I've always defined Christian orthodoxy as the Nicene Creed. If you can say the Nicene Creed and really believe it in your heart and have that as your article, your your faith, you're you're a Christian. Uh, as far as a group definition, well, that gets into a whole other thing. And I, um, yeah, I did I did stretch the uh, the definition somewhat to accommodate people like Jeffers and. Uh, King Louis Narcisse and a couple others who are based in the tradition, but really took it into some some odd and new new areas that I think would be considered heterodox, if not uh, actually stepping outside of what we would consider orthodoxy. So that's my own take on it. Yeah. Uh, uh, hey, our friend uh, Adam Go Rightly just asked a question. Any. <laughs> Did you uh, any any significant California Jesus saucer cults? And I, I think I mean apart from um, uh, Heaven's Gate, which I guess you wouldn't consider a California one, they just ended up here. Yeah, yeah, and they weren't they weren't really Christian. Oh no, they weren't Christian at all. They were very new age. Yeah, yeah. I would say I would say probably Jeffers and the and the Kingdom of Yahweh came closest because they started to mix in uh, the emerging sort of mythos of ufology with. with uh, a Baptist and then um, and then sacred name uh, uh, Christian variants and sort of took it in their own direction. I can't think of anybody else offhand. I'm sure they're out there, but um, I really had to limit my scope. And so it's basically 18, 18 chapters of uh, the groups that I really, and individuals I really thought were kind of quintessential and really had good stories behind them. Although I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's out there. I'm sure there are people that have, well, um, yeah. you, have you, combined the two. Yeah. You, well, you can say that most of the, um, not most of, but some of the, uh, UFO contactees did combine it. Um, oh, yes. mostly yeah. new agey, but they would also, you know, they, they'd say, well, Jesus was an alien too. And, um, yeah. he's yeah. just one of the many spiritual teachers. George King yeah. taught that, I believe. Yeah. And again, that's, that to me, that's when they're no longer can be considered Christian because right. the core is not really in the, um, the act of faith and the, the sort of, uh, and in the Nicene Creed and in the Bible and the, and the, um, and the sort of historic teachings 
of 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 the Christian faith. There, I think Jesus becomes more this as a friend of mine who's a who may be listening and who's a uh, a, a good uh, evangelical says she says, well, these people treat Jesus as their guru, and yeah, he becomes kind of an archetype rather than the savior and the sort of central figure of of humans' relationship with God, whatever that would be. It become he becomes more, as you said, one more one of many, and you see that a lot in something like the I Am tr- uh, uh, tradition, which evolved out of Theosophy, where right. Jesus is seen as Christ actually is seen as one of the ascended masters, and you've uh-huh. got Kutumi and the other ones there as well, and right. Buddha and whatnot. So yeah, I would say that's that's more you're you're sort of co-opting the man or the the, the mythic figure itself for for service in something else rather than originating in the faith that uh, um, that we call Christian. What's interesting is uh, recently. Um Tim Cridlin showed me some archive material that he'd gotten from the Gay and Lesbian Archives in San Francisco of mm-hmm. this guy named Raymond Brochiers. Oh, yes. And I did not realize, well, he was apparently a very good friend of Frank Strange's, the, the, mm-hmm. the uh, contactee, and that they were they put out a, a newsletter in the, throughout the, I guess, late 50s into the 60s, maybe into the late 60s, um, or a series of newsletters where they, you know, they talk about Christian theology and what might be wrong with it, and how they've changed it, and how they're, you know, they've got an up-to-date version of Christianity. But they also go into JFK assassination um, lore and UFO stuff. They have they actually have mm-hmm. many articles on UFOs in this Christian newsletter. Yeah, uh, and Brochures uh... was actually in, I guess, in sort of semi-involved. I, I think uh, uh, Garrison actually questioned him. Or Garrison's well, people. Roche, yeah. Now this is getting a, a bit off of the. We'll um, go back. We'll off, go back. Off of the subject of California Jesus, but I can I can talk on this for a couple of minutes because Brochures is a fascinating character, and the reason why he was questioned by Garrison was because he was roommates and fairly good friends with David Ferry, mm-hmm. who I just have always considered the most interesting person in the whole mythos of the JFK conspiracy and and uh, the mystery Definitely. behind that. Um, I actually have a book here, and I am looking at it, called called uh, The Radical Bishop and Gay Consciousness about Michael Itkin, Itkin who was another uh, very out-of-the-closet uh, independent Catholic bishop who had his own very interesting background. And here we'll segue back into California Jesus. A sure. photo I wanted to use but couldn't get the rights to uh, for California Jesus was uh, at a demonstration. It was uh, brochures in an Eastern Orthodox uh, get bishops yeah. uh, get up standing at a demonstration next to the Reverend Troy Perry of the Metropolitan Community Church, who I do discuss at in quite, a, at quite length in, um, in California, Jesus. And Perry was just a, who is still with us, um, is just a central figure in both uh, the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transsexual, questioning, whatever you want to call it, movement, uh, that started in the late 60s, or even before that, actually, and has had huge impact on American and world culture, and also in uh, reconciling Christian teaching and faith and culture with the gay experience. 
And so uh, um, Perry was another transplanted Southerner. He was originally from the Florida Panhandle, who had grown up Southern Baptist, had discovered Pentecostalism. Again, <laughs> there's the Pentecostal influence there. It's like a central uh, theme here. Yeah, and had um, had been aware of his, his gayness from a fairly early age, and had actually been thrown out of a couple of Pentecostal churches that he was uh, a pastor in, because the the news had gotten out. He was settled in California, and uh, after service in the army during Vietnam, had come back and had some personal crises and crises with friends around him, and decided that his ministry, he was going to set up a new church and a new ministry that would be towards the gay and lesbian and bisexual communities. Uh, which became the Metropolitan Community Church. Uh, very significantly, it started out with 12 people meeting on Sunday in his um, in his living room of his house, and after a few years, became a, a very large movement. Uh, and really, he was um, he was very Bible literate and fairly well educated. And I think one of his big things was looking at the. Uh, historical prohibitions against homosexuality in the Old and New Testament and looking at the more linguistic and cultural context and saying, well, they may not really mean what we think they mean. Like, for example, the, uh, the prohibition in Leviticus, he says, well, this is uh, this is this is old covenant. This these were the laws of the ancient uh, the ancient Hebrews, where you couldn't yeah you couldn't have men sleeping with men, but they also didn't want you eating shellfish. You shouldn't be mixing milk and meat. You shouldn't be wearing uh, uh, clothes of two different fibers. Yeah, he says uh, cutting your cutting your beard hair or whatever covenant. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're under the new covenant. This stuff doesn't apply to us. And he's and then. He also looked at, he said, well, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You look at the real story there, and this is borne up by, the, by many of the, the biblical authorities he quote. He says, it's not about homosexuality. It's about this mob who wanted to rape these, these male angels. It was not like a gay orgy. It was more like a, a, a prison gang rape. The, the, you know, it, was about a, it wasn't about sex. It was about they wanted to really hurt and humiliate these guys. And that was, you know, that was the sin of Sodom, was hatred and unfriendliness rather than homosexuality. And then he also addressed a lot of the things Paul said in, in some of his epistles and said, well, again, you have to look at the context. He was probably talking more about male temple prostitutes than simple gay sex. And really one of the things about the Metropolitan Community Church was the amount, in their early years, the amount of outright terrorism directed against them was unbelievable. I mean, they were having the churches burned down. Their, yeah, where, um, where was this? Pastors were being a... Where, where was this, Mike, and what years were uh, are we talking about here with uh, Troy Perry? 68 was when was when they got going. And ah, they this really, is kind of right in the middle of uh, the uh, gay movement starting, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually were ahead. Um, I, I have a friend who's an old gay hippie who is an activist from way back, and he always likes to say, uh, Stonewall, there was stuff happening in California years before Stonewall. We were having demonstrations and riots, and there was the MCC and all this. He says the only reason Stonewall gets any is, traction is because the news media was centered in New York at the time. Oh, so yes, if it yeah. wasn't happening in Manhattan it wasn't happening. So he's very, he's very bitter about that, but there's, <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that. Um, 
yeah, it really was was parallel the rise of what was called at the time gay lib uh, yeah, and, right. the, and the sort of increasing visibility and acceptance of gays and lesbians and bisexuals, and they were also very much on the the church was very much on the forefront of welcoming transsexuals and uh, gays and lesbians that were involved in the leather community into their churches too, which even among even among them was considered very controversial yeah. at the time. Of course, now it's you know you can see, you can see how far ahead of the curve they they were. Right. Uh, but yeah, by the early seventies when they really were expanding, there was a lot of of terrorism and vandalism and arson and all sorts of things directed against them. And the worst thing was, although it was not, it had more to do with a I think a. A crazy person that really was not homophobic at all. It was actually another another very disturbed gay man did this. Was the upstairs fire in uh, New Orleans? They were having the Metropolitan Community Church was having a, a little beer bash and social thing, and uh, uh, the place they were in caught on fire, and 32 people died. It was the worst um, worst conflagration in in New Orleans history, and it became this big uh, big issue because. Some of the bodies of the dead were not claimed because the families were just too embarrassed huh. that no oh, my you know our, our, uh, the, the, we don't want to be associated with this family member who was who died in a gay bar, and it became this big uh, national story after a while because Perry really really uh, excoriated New Orleans uh, media and officials for kind of treating the whole thing like a joke. Or being embarrassed by it, or not wanting to talk about it, and saying, "No, these are these are our people. These are human beings. We deserve respect. We're gay or lesbian or whatever. We're human beings too." And that changed a lot of minds, a lot of hearts at the time. And it's still, I actually have in California, Jesus, a reproduction of a uh, of a plaque, which is in the. Um, uh, on the sidewalk outside of where the upstairs used to be, honoring the uh, the people that died there. Huh. Uh, yeah. Is it, it was, is it that right was kind in, of one of the right in town in in New Orleans or is it uh, in New Orleans? Yeah, in the French Quarter. Oh, it's right in the quarter. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, it's pretty yeah. central. It was, it was actually held held on the day of a of a gay pride parade, 19, June twenty fourth, nineteen seventy three. Oh, okay. And um, and yeah, this was one of the probably the worst thing that ever happened to the the church, and but at the same time, it was became a rallying a point. Cause celebra saying. Yeah. We're here. We're we're queer. We're Christian, and we're not going away. <laughs> and he's still and around. I've you always, said. Yeah, I'm sorry. And he's still around. You said. Absolutely. Yeah. He's retired. He retired several years ago from active leadership of the MCC. But he's writes and speaks, and very interesting guy. Uh, and um, I, I talk about his uh, his his life and his doings, and that became very good. Uh, 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 very influential political figure too. Has met with uh, uh, met with Jimmy Carter in the uh, um, hmm. 1977. Uh, he was um, uh, friends with Bill Clinton. Uh, he just had a lot of um, very savvy as far as organizing the gay community and and also um, sort of sort of changing the Overton window of of, of Christian uh, di- uh, dialogue about sexuality. To accommodate and say, well, maybe the traditional understanding of being homosexual isn't really that accurate biblically or whatever. That he, you know, he was able to open up this new dialogue about uh, about it. So, 
and I also discuss uh, another uh, very famous gay evangelist in um, California Jesus, Lonnie Frisbee, who had a, was quite different. Uh, Frisbee was one of the, the big uh, Jesus people, or hippie Christians. He had, was in Southern California and was this charismatic guy who would just walk down a, a beach on a Saturday and preach and evangelize and whatever, and he would do these mass baptisms of surfers in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, he was really kind of one of the forces behind the Calvary Chapel and then later the, um, the Vineyard uh, Christian churches, which are two of the big revivalist churches in right. Southern California that now have, have worldwide followings. But he was also uh, closeted gay um, and eventually died of AIDS. Uh, and to this day, neither the the, uh, the Calvary Chapel or you know, the Vineyard Churches really like to talk about him, even though he was for a while this superstar among their ranks, who was bringing in all sorts of young people to the church. And again, he was a man who, un- unlike Perry, had never really been able to reconcile his own sexuality with his faith. And as good as he was an evangelist, and as as a uh, just charismatic, and and uh, there's lots of stories about the guy doing healings and doing all these amazing things. It eventually just um, they, they he was never able to kind of square the two things, and and ended up um, dying, I think, before he could really accept himself as as a gay man. So his his story is in California Jesus as well, and sort of put at right after the chapter about uh, about Troy Perry and the MCC is sort of a, contra- a study in contrast. Yeah. How does how does one and really in the introduction to California Jesus I talk about this whole factor I say okay I did subtitle the book a slightly irreverent guide <laughs> to the Golden State's Christian sex evangelist and Latter-day prophets and I say well, a lot of that is because I am discussing sometimes the more lurid or the more scandalous aspects of the individuals and groups here. Well, I'm not doing that just to sensationalize. I'm doing that because that's a very old and, and central and vital, I think, th- story of the Christian faith. It goes all the way back to St. Paul and St. Augustine, of, of where you have this very often very public struggle with one's own demons, with one's own uh, failings and sins. And it becomes really such a vital part of the story because, again, in the, in, in the Christian view, we're all sinners. We're all imperfect. We all are, have these, these, we're all carrying these crosses and having these struggles. And often the most influential and most dynamic and revolutionary and colorful of the people who are carrying the good news are the ones who are fighting the the, the nastiest struggles within themselves and with each other uh, to to kind of get past that. I mean, I always like the saying that that the church is is not a it's not a museum of saints; it's a hospital of sinners. And in California, Jesus, we're dealing with people who are really very uh, very comp- often very complex mi- mixtures of sinners, sinner and saint. So and, your your idea here is not I mean is not that these people were basically you know just uh, you, you can't put everybody in a in a uh, one category but that, that there's some of them that seem irredeemably 
terrible to me that just use the church as as kind of a use the, their their faith or the the appearance of faith as a way yeah. to get money out of people to enrich their own lives and they didn't really yeah. care too much about the the uh, yeah. the religious part they of it. Gave, yeah, they gave in to their own demons, really, or they gave in, and on a lot of the time it was just avarice. But again, yeah. that's that's part of it. You're always going to have false preach, false prophets, and false preachers around. And I don't really make judgments in in California Jews about who I think those are. I think it's right. rather obvious as to who they are in when one reads the book. Uh, and then you have and then you have others that I think were in their own ways very weird uh, saints and holy people. And I know that before the show we were discussing Leonard Knight and Salvation right. Mountain. Which is on the cover, actually. Yeah, which is on the cover. There's also a picture in the in the um, the chapter on Salvation Mountain of me standing in front of it. Uh, And uh, Knight was a interesting guy in that he was a uh, he's again a transplant. Most of these people were not natives. Uh, Most of them came here from somewhere else. And Knight was out of New England, and Mm. he. he was a Korean War vet who had a terrible experience there, uh, had and kind of was a handyman and car painter and did various things over the years. But then when he came to California in the mid-60s, had a very powerful spiritual experience uh, where he accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior and went back to Vermont, and the established churches didn't want to hear from him. Oh, no, you're too spontaneous. You're too weird. You're too... Uh, we don't want this guy. And uh, so he says, I, you know, he's on fire for the Lord. He says, How, I have to tell people about the love of Christ. How am I going to do it? And his first idea was when he saw a, uh, a hot air balloon floating over Burlington, Vermont, and which with a message on it. And he says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to construct a hot air balloon and put God as love and some verses from the Bible on it, and I'm going to fly it around the country. And he wasn't quite able to do that. And... Uh, he eventually ended out in California again, out in the, in the he desert. He tried to do uh, it out in California too, apparently. Yeah, yeah. He just it just didn't quite come together, and uh, finally, he was sort of camping out in public land near Nyland, which is sort of at the southeast corner of the Salton Sea, and said, "Well, I think I'm going to get on the road again." But since I couldn't get that balloon together, I'm going to make a little sort of thing, like a little pillar, a little monument colored and with with God is love on it and that'll be my you know my equivalent of my, my sort of consolation prize for never getting the balloon aloft <laughs> so he started putting this thing together and it he just decided no it's not big enough i got to make it bigger up oh, make it bigger no i had add, add some new stuff on it oh, i want to put some new art on it so it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it became this <laughs> this man made hill uh, he hadn't really built it of very good material, so it collapsed after about a year. So he switched over to adobe clay and uh, straw, mm-hmm. which is much stronger, and eventually made this very large man-made mountain covered with uh, colorful uh, quotes from the Bible and a big, huge slogan, God is love, and uh, drawings and artwork and things, and then he built uh, he built rooms into it, uh, like little chapel rooms. And there's something called the museum where there's skylights made out of old um, old car windows. Mm-hmm. And after a while, word got out, and it just became this uh, 
this kind of quintessentially Californian piece of <laughs> giant epic folk art out there in public land, and the county officials didn't like him and tried to uh, tried to get it condemned, and uh, they lost on that on that struggle. Uh, he also for us. very yeah good good for us good for for him and. Uh, I think also probably the people of Nyland like it too because a lot of people come out there and Oh yeah yeah I mean they offers, they did not you know? yeah they did not yeah. see many years ago it was just an eyesore now it's now it yeah. now now you know now you read it, articles about yeah. it in the New York Times yeah. I went out there 2 weeks ago I hadn't been there in months probably in years mm-hmm. Yeah and I could not and this was a Saturday I could not there were probably upwards of 2 or 300 people there which is yeah. amazing to me because uh, over the years when I've gone there, there's been like, four or five, or if yeah, it was yeah. really crowded, there might be ten people there. there yeah. It was completely packed, yeah. and people all, are walking all, all over. California it, Jesus and went out there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they were walking all over things which you not used to not be allowed to walk on, which made me kind of sad, actually. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 going to destroy the artwork out there. Yeah. Uh, he actually lived on the site there for many years in a in a little gypsy wagon and mm-hmm. people like you would would bring him uh would bring him paint and supplies yes and uh the stories i've heard from you and from other people and the footage i've seen just suggested that the man was was almost saintly that he was very kind and gentle and very very tolerant and loving and he he never really talked about hellfire damnation and whatnot he always emphasized the beauty and the and the and the loving and the healing power of Christ and uh along with the place being this sort of object of fascination for people that studied folk art or california weirdness of various types it also became kind of an object of a place of, of pilgrimage, and he was this sort of an- modern-day anchorite or mm-hmm. desert monk uh, yeah. out there um, that people would go to and confer with. And um, he also appeared in, a, in that film, Into the Wild, about the uh, the guy, that the young man that ended up dying in the Alaskan wilderness. Well, in, in real life, before he'd gone up there, he'd hung out at this place called Slab City, which is this yes. sort of... Yeah, the, 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 again, sort of outlawed desert settlement that's right next door to uh, uh, to Salvation Mountain, and uh, and in the movie, there's actually Leonard Knight actually appears in it, taking the uh, the two stars who are playing the, the young man and the young woman around and talking about uh, the the beauty of the desert and the beauty of of Christ and God. Oh man, yeah. I've got to see Very that. Touching now. little scene. Oh yeah, yeah. You can. They've got the excerpt on the YouTube. You can see it on YouTube. Oh Just okay. Type in into the wild. Salvation Mountain or Into the Wild Leonard Knight, you can yeah. see it. And but, just a very, very humble and warm and gentle man who I think really kind of, in many ways, just just, just really embodied the, the best parts of, of the Christian faith and experience. Yeah, and, and uh, the, I did, I told, as I told Mike, I did meet him on a couple of occasions, and... <laughs> Um, he was everything that Mike says he, he has just said right now. And on top of that, I was thinking about it. He never pushed anything on you. He didn't yeah. say you have to be this way or why don't you come join the church or why don't you read my tract on this or, you know, why aren't you going to church? He did not care. All he, all he did was welcome to everybody. He was very happy about it. I also noticed I think he did have a fascination with flight because mm-hmm. one time I went out there with a film crew and I actually flew over Salvation Mountain in an ultralight. 
And I went and asked him. I said, Leonard, is it okay if I fly over here? It's not. I mean, it, I know it's your property. He goes, Oh, no, it's not my property. I said, Well, it's your thing, and I want to make sure that you're okay with me flying over. He goes, No, no, I love flying. That that's wonderful. And after I landed, I came back and talked to him a little more, and he said, You know, actually. Um, a group of people came here once with hang glider, uh, powered hang glider trikes, and he got to fly in one of them over Salvation Mountain, which was something wow. I guess he remembered the rest of his life, of course, because he got to yeah. go up in the air, which he, he had been dreamed about with his balloon thing. Part of Salvation Mountain, I did not know this, is um, there is a large sculpture that was, is supposed to be a balloon. Uh, on the ground, being you know ready to be blown up into into a uh, into balloon shape, but it's it's this large like long flowing thing. And my friend Jane Puyawa said this this is uh, actually his sculpture of a of a balloon, the balloon he wanted to make. Wow, I believe I've seen it. Yes, I know what you're talking about. I've seen that thing. It's it's kind of white and and, and blue striped, and yes, it's. Uh, uh, and of course, also the the, the old his gi- little gypsy wagon and a couple of the other cars he had there. He also painted them and decorated them with sayings and artwork and whatever. Uh-huh. I mean, the man was uh, was was just quite a figure. And you especially have to have to sort of consider the harshness of the environment out there. That's the sub the the sub sea level low desert. And in the uh, in the summer there, it can easily get to be one hundred and twenty. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, and he's still out there working. Yeah, I mean, quite a uh, uh, quite an act of love and devotion, yeah. really. I think it's just uh, uh, he was still out there said, working. He died, I think, what three or four years ago. Yes, he did. yes he did, and now in a foundation uh, that sort of kind of watches over the site and maintains it and mm-hmm. keeps it up, and it's all all volunteers. Yeah, well, I think and, they should uh, put up a railing so people don't go stomping all over his artwork. <laughs> They might, they might end up doing that. Uh, I'll bring, because, I'll bring yeah, them some things to build it with. I, I would rather not see people stomping on this thing and having it destroyed in a few years. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I wrote uh, Mysterious California, I did a thing about the uh, the Blythentalios, which are these very large um, uh, sort of things that have been carved were carved into the uh, the desert about two or three thousand years ago yeah. by the indigenous peoples. Nazca sort of like. like. Yeah, they're like you know, like small versions of the Nazca lines. Really, you cannot see them from the ground. You have to be up in the air to really figure out what these things are. And unfortunately, some of them have been uh, wrecked by people just going over them in four-wheel drive vehicles or just stupid vandalism. And I remember writing about them and saying they need to put fences around these because this is <laughs> there's really nothing like this in the western US yeah. uh, there are a few others but they're very small yeah. or you know, yeah. very widely and they do have fences around them now yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and uh, and i think it's, it's it should be the same with with something but again it i think that it gets into the whole legal question because all the salvation mountain is Technically on uh, BLM land, right. it's on federal land, and there, there have been problems with the county, which I get into in uh, in California, Jesus, about their their jurisdiction over the the roads going out to it. So I think it would be there. There would have to be some legal finagling to 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 to, to have controlled access like that because it's it's outlaw. Um, yeah, it's just it's something that. That the, the feds and that state and the county decided wasn't worth fighting over, 
uh, after a certain point. But if you start to try to restrict access to it, then you're getting into some some legal areas. Right, uh, exactly. Well, not access to it, but access to parts that weren't made to be walked over. Yeah, yeah. Because everybody was allowed to climb up the stairs and go up to the top of the hill. It's basically, Mm -hmm. if people don't know, it's built, it's painted with all this adobe that Mike described on the side of of a probably probably 100, 150-foot hill, um, completely yeah. covering it, and uh, all these bright colors. And uh, mm-hmm. I noticed when I went out there a couple of weeks ago that there were it was getting dirty because people were walking all over it in places yeah. that he yeah. didn't normally uh, – He, pro- mm-hmm. I think he actually used to ask you not to walk off the off – the, he, he painted a yellow trail, like a yellow brick road yeah. all the way up, and he said, yeah. stay on that trail, <laughs> so everybody would do yeah. that. Yeah, and when I went out there, I did that. I just stayed on on the steps because I, you know, I I was raised by an artist. I respect art. I respect yeah. people's creations, and I certainly respect people's creations that are made with the divine in in mind. That are made almost as uh, as as holy objects, which that certainly was. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, night is a is an example of of the other the other end of where you get into into almost pure sanctity i would see in in a very eccentric californian way yeah. <laughs> but uh but still having having that um okay i i go ahead did, did you want to finish your thought no no okay. i think i'm 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 done with that okay um what i did not get through the entire book but i did not know that uh the actor mel gibson has a church i know his father was a very um orthodox or even like Ultra orthodox Catholic, to the mm-hmm. point of being yes. not even a Catholic anymore, and his son, I guess, has taken up some of that. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that's an interesting story too. The Church of the Holy Family, which is a uh, very, uh, it's it's up in the hills above Malibu in the Santa Monica Mountains, and when it was being constructed, nobody was really paying attention to it. Um, it was just this uh, okay, somebody's building a church up here, but. A reporter for the New York Times somehow did a little bit of digging and happened on the story and realized that the whole project was being financed by a foundation that had been set up by Mel Gibson and did some more digging and looking at some interviews that Gibson did in the past that had not been widely publicized and realized, hey, Mel Gibson is this very, very traditionalist Roman Catholic, which is kind of aberrant for a, you know a Hollywood superstar like that. Yeah. Um, and also found out that he's this is this is what's called an autocephalous Catholic church or an independent sacramental. There's various terms for these groups that have broken off from Rome over the years, and I I look at. Gibson's, and I look at another one, which is quite different, called the Mexican National Catholic Church, which was tied in with the the 1916 revolution in Mexico and a lot of the the very Byzantine politics down there, but Uh ironically enough, survived up in the United States after it had long sort of passed into history in in Mexico itself. But back to to the Church of the Holy Family and Mel Gibson... um, and they're rather it's the rather secretive. There's about seventy or eighty people who are members of the parish. They're ultra traditionalist Catholic. Uh Latin Mass, uh women wear head coverings in church, fish on Friday, uh everything in the Roman Catholic Magisterium before Vatican II is absolute truth and has to be adhered to. And the weird thing about that is they one of the weird things about about Holy Family besides their secretiveness and and uh, exclusivity 
is that part of their land used to belong to a group called the Akurian Education Group, which was led by this man, um, Tuckum Savaranian, something like that. He was a um, Armenian who had actually been trained in the Armenian Orthodox uh, priesthood for a while, but then went in this very New Age metaphysical direction and ended up having enough money and, and power to have some, some land up in the hills. And after he passed on, they were his organization, which is still around, was trying to raise some money. They sold some of their land to this super traditionalist uh, Catholic sect. Uh, but yeah, there's been, of course, uh, Gibson really got uh he got his foundation got a huge injection of of cash from um from the passion of the christ which was his yeah. own production and right. ended up making like half a billion dollars in worldwide release ah, didn't know uh, that. yeah yeah it was a huge hit um and it was actually as funny as some of the places it did the best in were were muslim countries um <laughs> what why yeah yeah well, I think it's because the the rep or the buzz came around it, and again, this is open interpretation that it was anti-Semitic. That oh, it, that's it, right. it made it, it was it went a little well. It was it it, it, it dwelt a, a little too much on the role of the Sanhedrin in mm-hmm. condemning Jesus, and also that it was. Um, the, the bloody torture of Christ, the passion was really made very gory and overemphasized, and Christ falling and more than he was recorded to, and various other things as well. I mean, I have, I've only seen bits and pieces of the, the movie, and I think another reason it, it did well in that part of the world, in the Muslim world, was because um, part of the uh, the dialogue was in Aramaic. Ah, okay. Uh, which is yeah considered kind of a bridge language between Arabic and Hebrew, right. and it, it's it's mostly passed on. There's only a few thousand people in the world who still speak Aramaic, right. but it was considered kind of well. This is interesting that they're publicizing this part of the you know this this part of our culture that most people don't talk about. Uh, but yeah, it was a huge hit and made a lot of money for uh, for Gibson and the foundation. But they've just maintained over the years a fairly low-key presence up there. Uh, it's protected by fences and guards, and you have Sunday Mass and various other events there. But And, of course, uh, Mel Gibson has gone on to make other movies and be involved in scandals of him driving drunk and screaming abuse at CHP officers and whatnot. He seems to have cleaned up his act since, but... Uh, I do I do discuss the Church of the Holy Family in there, and this sort of, again, as we were talking at the beginning of this show, about the, the intersection of the entertainment industry right. and the Christian experience there. And there, it's just blatant. I mean, there, it's an actual honest-to-God movie star who has... Uh, Basically his own church. This. Yeah, yeah. And it technically is, because it's... They have... Whoever whoever is uh, is officiating there has apostolic authority. It's just not recognized as regular by Rome. There's a whole question I get into about the whole definition of Catholic in in California, Jesus, and that they have what's called apostolic succession, which is if you are a bishop who has been ordained by another bishop, or actually raised the episcopacy, they call it, who can trace his lineage back through the centuries, all the way back to the original apostles, you can be totally unorthodox 
you can be completely a complete heretic, but your authority as a bishop is still recognized as legitimate. Hmm. It's just, you can still be called a, a bishop, you've still got this, what's called apostolic succession. Right. It's like, it's like providence in art collecting. You can trace right. all the links right. back to the, the, the creator. You can say that this is, this is regular, even though it's not, you know, the, the, the doctrines can be, and the practices can be totally unacceptable, and we'll oppose that, but yeah, we'll grudgingly still call you a, a bishop or a, or a priest who has who has been ordained by one of these bishops. Um, there's actually a, a, a group that's still in Europe called the Old Catholic Church that started in 1870 after Vatican I. Right, when right. A bunch of Germans and Austrians decided they didn't want to be on board with that and linked up with a group that had been separate in Holland that had been separated from uh, Rome for a while, and they're accepted as yeah they're. They're kind of seen as almost like Western Orthodox. Yes, you're Catholic. Yes, you're Christian. We don't, you know, we don't have communion with you. We don't recognize you as as an equal church, but we'll, we'll grudgingly recognize you as, uh, you know, as opposed to say Protestantism, which is not recognized as, at all in, in traditional thing. At least you can say at, with these groups that say they have the apostolic authority, even though it, in in the view of the Vatican they, it's been sort of taken in, in uh, directions they don't like, or splitting from, from seeing uh, the Pope as, as, the, uh, as the head of Christendom. Right. It wasn't uh, wasn't uh, Ferry and a few of the people around uh, New Orleans, did they not claim to be part of the old Catholic Church, or was that a further split off from well, that group? Interestingly enough, <laughs> and this is, this is a little tangent, but it does explain something about my interests. Uh-huh. The reason I think I got interested in all this stuff to begin with was in 1985, when I was living in West L.A., I went and saw a lecture by Robert Anton Wilson. Huh. And Wilson, as he often did, was riffing about various subjects, and the subject of the JFK assassination came up, and he mentioned Ferry, and I'd always been interested in the, the all the stories and mysteries and theories behind that uh, rather pivotal event in, in American history. And he mentioned, well, David Fury was, did you know that he was a bishop and something that called itself the old Catholic Church? And here I am. I said, well, what the hell is that? So <laughs> being uh, a researcher and an, a, a gatherer of strange information, I was uh, at the time uh, working at, at UCLA as a staffer, and uh, I went to the university research library there and did a little, I said, Old Catholic Church, this is a thing. There are yeah. these groups that call themselves Catholic that aren't part of Rome, and they have all you know their own bishops and their own little churches and things, and some of them are pretty have some pretty weird people involved with them, like David Ferry, and I think that's one of the things of the... Um, that whole kind of ecclesiastical underground is it attracts people who really like the image of being a bishop, which is like being a, a you know a corporate senior vice president or something like that. It's a it's a position of power, and I think part of it is the a lot of occultists have gotten involved because they see there's this there's this kind of almost both symbolic and maybe metaphysical power of having this you know bearing this little flame. That you've taken that can be that's been passed on over the centuries and goes all the way back at least in you know allegedly to uh, to the twelve apostles and Jesus Christ Himself that this is this gives you power this is like um, this is something that enhances you and 
really, in many ways, the first person who did this was Simon Magus, who tried to buy himself an apostleship, or a, and um, that's why this this sort of practice of trying to buy one's position in the church over the years has been called simony mm-hmm. uh, after him. Right. So it's an old, it's really an old phenomenon, and uh, they fascinate me as just this this funny ecclesiastic underground, and there's there's other ones as well. I mean. Um, uh, Mormonism, for example, has a lot of, of split-off groups that you never hear about. Uh, right. Well, or you hear about them in the context of the uh, the neo-polygamists. I mean, all the right, right. The, uh, that's uh, yeah. what's his name, Jeffs, I guess, Warren Jeffs, and the, yeah, the people yeah, in southern yeah. Utah, northern Arizona that, that have split yeah, off. That's yeah. just one of the more famous ones. Yeah, I mentioned in in California Jesus, I have a story in there about uh, the mainstream Latter-day Saints, who actually had a very strong presence in Southern California very early on, Yes, and were really behind the founding of what's now San Bernardino. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they had a community there. I did, I did not know that until I read it in your book. Yeah, and something else I did not know is the community had been started by veterans of the Mormon Battalion in mm-hmm. the Mexican-American War. The Mormon Battalion is the only unit in the entire history of the American military who were segregated by religion. It was an army battalion that was all Mormons from Utah and Missouri and had, had volunteered to fight in, um, in Mexico in the Mexican-American War. And when, and when the, uh, the war was mostly over, they kind of uh, settled around this, what's now the San Bernardino area, and made their own little community there that was seen as sort of a western reach of the main operation around, around Utah and Salt Lake City. And they'd been blessed by, uh, by Brigham Young and stayed in, in close contact with him. And started absorbing people around them as well, uh, uh, Mormon converts from uh, from the Pacific Islands and other parts of the world would live there, and it lasted for, for a few years and unfortunately started to break up because of the increasing problems uh, the Mormon, the main Mormon operation in, um, in Utah was having with the U.S. federal government, so they, most of them were called back. They said, we need you. We need you here. You guys yeah. are, are, are war veterans. This might come down to some, you know, to, to fighting. Right. And, yeah. and, it, the, and it atrophied yeah. after they left, as you pointed out. Yeah, in. yeah. It just, it just got absorbed into the, into what's, well, Mormons call non-Mormons, Gentiles. It got yeah. absorbed into the sort of burgeoning Gentile population around what's now, uh, what's now San Bernardino. But they were a vital part of the early, uh, the early uh, settling American history of, um, of that area of the Inland Empire. Yeah, I have. And a, you never again. Another thing you never hear about in it, even in even in special studies of California history and yeah. histories of San Bernardino. Yeah, I, I bet Walter might know a little bit about Walter Bosley. I, I have one other question. Um, we've got a few minutes left. Did you, and it, maybe it's not even a question, but have you heard of a uh, Mormon? Uh, What's the word? Expedition to try and claim San Francisco Bay or the San Francisco area, so that they could they could kind of meet in the middle. But the, what yeah, I was Sam told, Sam Brandon was part of that. Okay, because I was I that think was, Bill Moore told me was, this. They got to Fort Point and they saw the American flag, which had just been raised like two days earlier, and they went, "Damn it!" Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was the yeah, Sam Brandon was part of that, and then he just settled decided to settle in the town as a as a businessman, and he was the one as we all know ones who were California history buffs who really got the um, 
got the gold rush rolling because once the news came in from uh, Sutter's Sutter's Mill that there had been a gold strike there, the story is that he went running up and down the streets of the then sleepy little town of San Francisco with a bottle of gold dust in his hand yelling, gold, gold on the Sacramento River. And uh, ever since then, you know, everything changed after that. Uh, <laughs> I often thought that that's... That was really when California, as we knew it, began. It became this this strange land of, of, of wild dreams and quick money, and you can get away with just about anything here if you do it in a colorful way, and uh, multicultural, multiracial, people come here from all over the world, and you know they, t- they take the elements of their home, their home culture and then combine them into the mix here and make make things that much more colorful and interesting and uh i've always said yeah that's that's kind of when the myth really began when we were no longer just this former mexican colony that had been formerly part of spain that had been you know before that had been home of various different indian nations that's when we became this presence on the world stage that was unlike anywhere else on earth uh, you you have just uh, awakened a a a, a, a uh, patriotic fervor in me that I did not have before because I'm a, a very much a California person just like you I was born here I'm proud yeah. to be here I've, as much as pride can enter into it and uh-huh. I've never heard anybody express it that way and it makes total sense to me I th- <laughs> I think you should create T-shirts or something with the with with, with the guy running down the you know just like gold yeah. <laughs> yeah, I birth of California. Know yeah, they're the founders of the California National Party, and it's funny because for years I'd, I'd been sort of half jokingly saying, "I said we're our own nation here. Yeah. We're different, than, really different than the rest of the U.S." And I said, "Someday there's going to be a separatist, separatist movement here," and people would just say, "Oh, Mike, you know what are you smoking?" <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, and, and sure enough, uh, because of various circumstances, we have this active separatist movement now. So right. I, I'm always. A, a, well, I don't want to. I'm not a separatist, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just say it's it's part of this this whole. You know, I just know these guys. I don't necessarily support it myself, but I just um, it's it's part of this. I I just see this as in many ways kind of a kind of a natural outgrowth of this myth. Again, the myth that yeah. we have around here, the identity and the whole belief in something bigger than them than oneself, which whether it's religion and faith, as I get into in California, Jesus, or the various other things that you and I have uh, studied and been fascinated by over the years. Or just simple freedom to do whatever the hell you want to do. That's a huge part of the myth. And, it, and then oh, people yeah. come out here and find out that it's, in some ways, it's, it's quite true. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, there's been a lot of, you know, I mean, I'm 56 years old, and so I, I grew up in the west side of L.A. in the 60s and 70s, and uh, so I've seen, and I live in the Bay Area now, uh, in Marin County, which is a very quintessential part of uh, California, and so I've seen a lot of change. It's its own country uh, in California, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've seen, I've seen a, lot of, a lot of change, but the, the myth is still there, and the, the, the ideals are still there, and... Um, they're still we're 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 still have that that distinct identity uh and still have that, that kind of feeling that this is like nowhere else on earth i mean there's a i always say there's a reason why the Spaniards who landed here named the uh named the state after queen Khalifa, who is mm-hmm. the 
Afri- black Amazon go- uh, queen or goddess of this uh, of, the, of this legendary island in, right. in this Spanish romance novel. Mm-hmm. There has, it's like Oz, you know, this yeah. almost otherworldly feel. About it's like it. Oz, and then it actually turned into it for real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe there was and, a, some kind of cross cross uh, pollination yeah. between the, the 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 fiction and the fact, and the, it continues. Yeah. And like Oz, there's there's some fakery going on too, just like the wizard, mm-hmm, uh, the man mm-hmm. behind the curtain. You know, there's <laughs> there's always that glamour, that illusion that goes on here too. Uh, and whether it's Hollywood or you know all of the hype of, of high technology, and it all goes back, to, you know, and even that goes back to the gold rush. And yeah, right. you come here and pick out pick out gold nuggets out of the you know the, the city streets and. Right. Uh, uh, you know, old, old story. Uh-huh. Okay, the book is California Jesus, A Slightly Irreverent Guide to the Golden States Christian Sects, Evangelists, and Latter-day Prophets, and you can get that on Amazon, and is that where you prefer people to get it? Yeah, Amazon. Uh, the publisher is Ronan Publishing of Berkeley, California. You can you can look them up online too and get it from direct from them. And one thing I'd like to tell anybody who's listening is if uh, if you'd like a little special souvenir of the not the book itself but uh, a little collectible that that uh, goes along with it, uh, you can email me. Uh, and I will uh, give me your mailing address, your snail mail address, and I can send it to you. Uh, my email is uh, M-I-K-A-L 9000, that's nine followed by three zeros, at gmail.com. That's M-I-K-A-L 9000 at gmail.com, and I will be uh, glad to send this uh, this to you. It is a... Um, a little useful uh, <laughs> uh, item that uh, has the beautiful cover of uh, of uh, California Jesus on it, and um, should be uh, uh, is is offered completely completely at my at my expense to any any listeners out there who've stuck with uh, this uh, broadcast and uh, podcast rather and uh, uh, listen to uh, myself and Mr. Bishop discuss this. Uh, discuss the book yeah well we we did have we do have live listeners but as i told you most of them come through on the uh on the uh on the uh, on the download later so that's yeah, where yeah. most people it's will hear this for them too yes yep them too though if they hear it if you're hearing this days or weeks or months from the uh, the, <laughs> the uh the podcast i will honor those as well i ah. just i just want to uh want to see who's out there and who's who's listening and who's interested and reward you with uh, a little california jesus collectible well, thanks, Mike. Uh, the guest always gets to pick the outro music. So, what, what what would you like to hear? I'll just look it up on YouTube. Uh, there is a beautiful song on YouTube that I saw. Um, it's by a. Um, I know this is this is bad YouTube, uh, bad podcast radio now because I'm beginning to create uh, dead air and do ums and ahs and whatever. I do that all but the time, Mike. Song- Don't worry about it. <laughs> that that is a that is a that's a normal feature of this show. Okay, okay. <laughs> we have a lot of stuttering and stammering and yes, whatnot. Exactly. It is a it is a uh, a song. I am looking it up. See, I'm. This is a wonderful thing about the uh, 
uh, about the Internet is we can just sit here and look this stuff up in real time. Yeah. Okay, I Am California by John Craigie. His last name is spelled C-R-A-I-G-I-E. Found it. Uh, yeah, it is. If you can get the album version, it is the, or, or whatever, the, the studio version. The live ones you get to the studio is really good. It is a wonderful, wonderful song. And I think okay, it's here we go. the, here, the yeah, way to... to yeah, to, I found uh, studio version here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But that, that, that I would love. Um, I just discovered that a couple weeks ago, and I love that song. And it's I've, perfect, I think, for, for the, uh, our theme. Okay. I've never heard of this song, and I can't wait to hear it. Once again, thank you so much, Mike. And Thank you for having me on. Yeah. And thank you to the listeners for, for tuning in and, um, and hearing a bit about, uh, about California Jesus on this um, on this sacred uh and and holy easter day and uh and best thoughts to uh to all of you whether believers or not i think we're all people and we're all uh you know we we all uh uh have our our own beliefs or lack thereof and <laughs> our own takes on things and i just try to be open to everything and and try to uh to uh, uh listen to everyone all right. Okay. Thanks so much, Mike. Here, here's uh, "I Am California" with John by John Craigie. John, John Craigie, yes. and it says with Gregory Allen Isakoff. Is that the one you're talking about? That's the one. Yeah. Okay. Faded in helps. Yeah. I, I turn it up so Mike can hear it. You try to drown your sorrow. Shouldn't have taught them how to swim And now you are right back where you began Winter skies approaching All alone in the wasteland Alone is the only way that they let you in. So drink all my wine, cut all my trees, make love on my beaches, smoke all my weed. I am California, can you see? Wherever you roam, you'll always want me. We struggle with our love. We don't know what to let in. Cause the new ones pay for the old ones. Blinded by your shadow Faded on your love You don't know how deep you are Till you get pulled back up So drink all my wine Cut all my trees Love on my beaches, smoke 
on my way. I am California. Can you see? Wherever you go, you'll always want me. 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 You'